Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on Ibiza and the unique Belearic subgenre it spawned as well as Belgian New Beat and other Eurodance trends of the late 80s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and when you hear me say that dreaded word, you know my co-host Ryan Harkness is nearby, and we are continuing our discussion of Last Night, a DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey. We're taping these a little bit out of order, but we're going back and squeezing this in. The book crammed trance in with techno and so we're going to expand a little bit on their coverage of trance because it's as anybody who's had their ears on in the last 20 years knows it goes on to become a massively massively commercial commercially important and artistic yeah maybe artistically important as a stretch but it's a very important genre ryan trance yeah, Bill Brewster really gives short shrift to this, and this is one of those times where where I feel like uh, his his personal preferences and biases come through. Uh, y- you Google him on uh, on YouTube and and on Mixcloud and stuff like that, and and you check out his musical influences, and he's definitely he's definitely into into funk and groove and house and everything else like that, and 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 some darker techno. But uh, you know, I just think that he does not really touch that melodic end of things, so the interest was never really there for him to go and and dig extremely deeply into any of this so uh you know for a for a genre that that basically has 50 bastard offspring that 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 take over the entire underground and and commercial scene <clears throat> i think it's a pretty important thing to really kind of break down and talk about yeah absolutely and why does frank broughton get a pass on all this 
Ah, uh, well, you know, it, it seems like Bill Brewster's the name that that, uh, that that sits at the top of everything. He's the guy that does a lot of the interviews on the Red Bull Music Academy. I feel like Frank Broughton might have might have put a sheen on the book, but you know, Bill Brewster's name came first. Bill Brewster has a couple of other books in in the same vein, so I always just kind of credit it more to to him. Frank Broughton is kind of in, more invisible on the internet, so it's hard for me to to gauge what he did when he's such a such a smooth ghost operator. Well, whatever you're doing, don't mess it up because I'm still trying to get an interview with either one or both of these guys. So <laughs> anyway, uh, but yeah, I'm just kidding. But it'll, um, it'll, it'll help with all the criticism that we continue to levy at them chapter after chapter. Exactly. Uh, but paying so much attention to their book, I'm hoping they appreciate that because I, I like to think we're driving a sale or two. Yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think it's it's a classic Brit music obsessive thing to focus on the african-american syncopated funky stuff and to kind of write off the more euro melodic and this is definitely a genre where the music gets real white there's no way around it i mean and that's not the ideal term obviously but the music gets very melodic and a lot of times they just take the syncopation right out of it. You know, like, I mean, house was four on the floor, but there's all kinds of funky bass lines and, and other elements of syncopation. And this is where that Euro influence comes in. And I've noticed, you know, a lot of the hate of heavy metal I ascribe by critics, not fans, of course. Um, I ascribe to the fact that heavy metal is so influenced by European martial and operatic music. And this stuff is the same thing. And even... One of the elements that's a precursor of this is the 70s synth, I would call it synth rock stuff, like Jean-Michael Jarre, Vangelis, Tangerine Dream. This stuff was listened to by rock fans. It was rock adjacent. And I've also noticed, you know, other Brit writers on electronic music diss that stuff too. Like they, you know, that whole school of music gets a big, eh, we don't think so from the British music critics a lot of the times and American music critics as well. But it, it you know, it rears its head. It, it made a big impact in the 70s and these kids were listening. And, you know, they, another thing about techno is the Germans have as good a claim to having originated it as anybody. I mean, between Kraftwerk and Giorgio Moroder, who's obviously Italian, but he recorded in Munich, you know, this is not an instance so much of African-American music being appropriated as it is Euro music being appropriated by African-Americans, given back to the world, and then reappropriated by the Germans again. So it's, I just love this stuff. I love the back and forth and, and, the, and the cultural exchanges, but I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of about, I mean, talk about an incredible musical tradition, Germany, you know, Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, et cetera, Wagner, the whole bit, like they've been bringing it for a long time and they continued to do that in the nineties. And this stuff, the other thing about trance I want to get across is that when it really emerged in this post cold war environment especially in berlin i mean it, it starts in frankfurt before the wall falls but it really takes off in berlin and if you weren't alive then you cannot imagine the ecstasy of those of that era i mean this is this nightmare that is going to kill us all throughout our lifetimes throughout the 60s 70s 80s if you know if you if you were growing up in the cold war it sucked and then suddenly it's over and you know, 
it gave you this feeling that anything was possible because that was the biggest, scariest problem in our lifetime, and suddenly it's gone. And so I can only imagine how exciting that was for the kids in Berlin. And they got their hands on some records, and they went to town. Yeah, the, the melodic element of it really is, I feel, possibly uh, why why people are, are so against it, why music uh, writers and critics and stuff like that. I, I mean, uh, one of the guys from Above and Beyond says explicitly in one of the articles we kind of read as a background that there's just no room for, for funkiness above 140 beats per minute. So they completely strip out you know, one of the key elements of, of what music critics have, have loved for the last 40 years and just completely do away with it and replace it with, you know, soaring, ridiculous vocals and, and big, earnest strings. And, and it's pretty much dance music at its most operatic, most symphonic and uh, and most earnest. And, and let's let's be honest, cheesy. I mean, uh, when we were looking through this for a definitive history of trance, first, it was interesting to note how hard it was to to find anything there's no singular story uh of of this genre the same way there is with techno where you've got you know the belleville three in detroit and they were the guys that did this and did this there's kind of a very vague sense of ownership for a couple of different regions and there's a couple of stories that, that turn out to not really be that true and no one's really bothered to look deeper into it so when we were looking for history of trance music we just found a bunch of articles that said you know in defense of trance music or uh why trance is still around even though it sucked like the beginning of every article was yes we know trance is cheesy and uh and a lot of people say it's terrible but here's why it endures on there there was always this this weird kind of asterisk at the beginning of it to be like we understand that trance is not socially acceptable to talk about as a legitimate music form and uh you know as, as a trans guy i i recognize the fact that it, it on one hand is cheesy and ridiculous but on the other hand as i said it's the closest thing we got to classical music when it comes to electronic dance music so maybe a little bit of respect is in order i cannot argue with that and although i have to admit going back and listening to so much of this stuff to prep for this episode it's definitely cheesy. I mean, I definitely found myself just eye rolling at some moments, even as I was banging my head, you know, along with it and and doing the trance dance in the car with my waving my arms around like a hippie. It's yeah, the, the cheese factor is undeniable. And that just, I think, comes with the territory. If you really get into opera and you really talk to real opera fans, it's not some kind of highfalutin art music. This is heart on your sleeve, go for the gusto, be as cheesy as you possibly can. And, you know, so, but Steph's telling me it's time to cue. And the first tune you've got queued up here on our list is Brit synth pop from the 80s by a group called Blanc Mange, which... I've always ignored any group that starts talking about British food. Like if, if there was a band called Yorkshire Pudding, I would put them on the pass list. Like King Crimson had a song about As an album title with Aspic in it. I was out of there. So anyway, why did we pick Blanc Mange living on the ceiling? Or I guess let's hear it and then and then we'll talk about it. And that was Blancmange living on the ceiling. 
And the, and this is the bridge, not the beginning of the song. Why did you pick this as an important precursor of trance? Well, this is kind of what was going on in, in Goa at the time. And this is where, you know, we just mentioned the fact that there are the proto elements of trance included guys like Jean-Michel Jarre and Vangelis, uh, rock like Tangerine Dream, and obviously Kraftwerk plays in there. But the people who were who were the key drivers behind the actual production of this first wave of trance music they they weren't they weren't into that kind of stuff or they wasn't a key influence they were actually more from an industrial ebm electronic body mo- movement uh belgian new beat new wave synth pop background uh there's an interesting story from adam x who's one of the guys who was the key storm rave dudes in new york city running raves and he was kind of saying how he started out as an industrial guy and he was following a whole bunch of labels that that were industrial and uh belgian new beat and these were the guys that ended up putting out the first trance records tala 2 xlc had a label out of frankfurt that was all industrial and uh a guy named uh, adam uh, martin glover was in a band called uh, killing joke which is a, a key industrial band and he was the guy who created the first psytrance label in the uk and he also worked with Ben Watkins of Juno Reactor and Jim Cotty of the KLF and a band called uh, Brilliant, which is another weird new wave, wave band. So all of these guys, uh, when you're talking about where they came from, they didn't come from house or 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 techno or or disco or any of those kind of dance uh, floor oriented genres. They they actually came from a bit of a of a more left field area from that industrial and and new wave synth groups. And all of these guys were visiting Goa in the 80s. We talked a little bit about how um, a, a group of guys went to Ibiza and came back and brought that Balearic sound to the UK. Well, a bunch of these uh, different people were going to Goa and they were being exposed to a much more hard-edged melange of different genres, which was a, a whole crazy mix, again, of industrial and new wave and synth pop. And this uh, Blanc Mange track uh, kind of gives you an idea all of a sudden of how when you think about new wave and you're like, well, how the hell does that translate into trance? Then you hear the bridge for this track and you realize, okay, this sounds a lot like classic old school trance, and it all starts to make a lot more sense. And a big factor there is the Indian music that they they incorporate in the bridge. And that you're in Goa, which is in India, but it's a weird place in India. It was a Portuguese colony until 1961. So it's a very Euro-dominated region of India. And it saw an influx of hippie migrants in the 60s that were there throughout the 70s and 80s. So Goa Gill, who was one of the key DJs in that scene, is a straight up deadhead. And I, I interviewed Jesse Jarno uh, and he had a book about the way the psychedelic culture split away from the Grateful Dead or, or forked out of the Grateful Dead or flowered out of the soil of the Grateful Dead. And uh, Goa Gill is definitely part of that. So, you know, he's playing these sets with all this industrial stuff, but he'd throw a Grateful Dead live mix in there, you know, and, and it's it's a very, very hippie vibe. And it definitely is a big precursor on the crusty rave scene in the UK. I mean, where you have hippies, you're going to get crusties as soon as they have kids and abandon them to their own devices. It's just a, a countdown um, till it happens. And then there's also the whole Israeli factor, like, Israelis couldn't travel to India until the late 80s, but just in time for this explosion, those barriers come down and you get this consistent pattern that continues, as far as I know to this day, 
of kids rolling out of their mandatory military service in Israel. And a lot of them need to get away. Like, you know, they've been in Gaza and I'm not going to comment on that whole shit show, but you know, they have a real incentive to get away from war and conflict and get to peace and love, et cetera. And, you know, there's been a big appetite that, for that. And the Tel Aviv scene has been totally driven um, by trance. It, you know, it, it's, it's been this back and forth and, and cross-pollination. So, yeah, just fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, Goa was was no it was a known haven for psychedelic rock uh, through the '60s and '70s, and then in the '80s, DJs started showing up with pitch-controlled Sony Walkmans, playing tape edits of all the newest and strangest stuff, like that that track that we just played, "Living on the Ceiling." Uh, there's a, a DJ who's who's infamous in Goa. He is considered the guy who who basically started everything up, and his name's DJ Laurent Laurent from France, and uh, he would make tape edits uh, the same way that some of our old classic uh, uh, disco guys uh, would, and he would just loop these bridges and or take out the lyrics uh, and, and, and really mix these tracks up to make them much more dance floor acceptable and to make them longer, and he would DJ on cassette tapes uh, to, to people in the middle of the jungle, and it was uh, these full moon parties were, were, were just revolutionary and powerful and because of the the locale and the mindset that people had and and the kind of edits that were being made that they would also add strange quotes from movies and repeating them getting into people's minds obviously people are probably uh, you know not exactly sober so all of these quick snippets and quotes that they were choosing were designed to to really give people a bit of a of a weirder trip and to think about things so there there's a real it was a, a continuation of that psychedelic tradition, and a lot of guys like Goa Gill, who were into that rock, w- would incorporate that kind of rock sound into their own form of, of Goa trance. And there's some really cool mixes that you can hear from the from the early 80s on Mixcloud and other sites. If you just look for Proto Goa, you'll find a whole bunch of mixes of uh, of sets that were made in, in the mid 80s to late 80s that were where you can really hear the music form really starting to come together. Yeah. And and. The Germans are listening and sometimes traveling over there. Uh, Sven Veth um, from Frankfurt, who is a key early DJ in the trance scene. He's got the uh, Omen Club in Frankfurt when he's 21 and, you know, becomes the king of the techno scene there. But like they call him in the, in the book, the embodiment of German dance music's evolution through the eighties and nineties. You know, they say at 18, he was playing soul oldies, high energy and electronic body music. At 21, he's in a synth band called off and he tours and takes the money from that and builds his own club, the Omen Club. And then um, two years later with DJ Dog, Pascal, uh, Feos, and Resistance D, he plants the roots of trance and and his heart house label is at the forefront of trance. So you can't, again, this cross-pollination is is just fascinating and, and the integral part of the way this music evolves. But look at the guy's background. He's German, so you know the Beethoven is in the water there, and then he's got this whole background of electronic body music and '80s synth pop, and I'm sure he was, you know, plenty aware of kraut rock and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, tell us about Sven. So uh, Sven also DJed at a club called Dorian Gray, which to me is one of the most interesting 
super clubs in the history of the world. It's in the Frankfurt airport. It's a giant club in the airport. And basically since 1984, a guy named Tala2XLC, who we mentioned before, uh, big into the industrial scene and, and, and had a couple of labels that he put out a bunch of it you know, pre-trance and trance music on. He ended up basically taking over Dorian Gray and and running it as a what he called it, the techno club. And I remember around 1996, the first CD that I ever bought that had trance music on it was one of Tala2XLC's techno club CDs. And, uh, you know, don't, don't get the name confused. Obviously, techno uh, and trance all at this point in time is all getting kind of conflated and mixed together. Those techno club CDs were pure early trance. So uh, that club ended up being one of the, the cornerstones and Sven Vath was, was basically a resident at that place before he managed to, you know, make a bunch of money off of a, a boy band and, and open up his, his own club called the Omen. And, uh, you know, Frankfurt basically ended up being the, the core city for trance in Germany, because obviously Berlin being split down the middle, uh, with a, with a cold war going on, isn't exactly the best place in the world for, a for a rave scene. So it wasn't until the wall came down that Paul Van Dyke showed up and led Berlin. And, and at the time, Berlin was was big into techno. It's still big into techno now. But Paul Van Dyke was the guy that basically got rid of the stranglehold uh, of techno over Berlin. And he managed to start putting out uh, tracks as well. And, and his his stuff was really, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of argument about what the first trance track is, and we haven't really touched on on that just yet, but we, we can circle back around to that. But yeah, uh, Paul Van... Before you go, go deeper into Paul Van Dyke, I want to go backtrack a little bit because Steph's letting me know it's past time to cue. And I want to talk about an Israeli group originally, and this is two songs that you're going to splice together for us. The, this is SFX, who later become known as Astral Projection. This is their tune H2H3 from 1990. This is before they go to Goa. And then the second half of this clip is Astral Projection Kabbalah from 1993, same kids after they've been to Goa. So it's kind of a before and after, and you can hear um, how this aspiring Israeli techno group gets impacted by the Goa experience. Up of SFX's H2, H3, and Astral Projections, Kabbalah. Same people, different groups. Why'd you pick those tracks? Uh, well, I thought it was a perfect example of what happens when you take some some kids in Israel who are making music based off of you know uh, the stuff that they love, which at the time was Depeche Mode, Human League, Kraftwerk, Front 42, Front 242, and, and and the techno that they're making then, and then you throw them over to Goa and you you have them spend a, a winter over in Goa on the beaches, and then they come back and they write something like Kabbalah. 
Now, Sven Vath, the exact same thing happened to him. He starts going over to, to Goa, and when he comes back, he releases a bunch of, of Eastern-tinged trance monsters that, 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 that make a, a, a pretty big splash. Now, Paul Van Dyke, he's a good example of what happens when you don't go to Goa, and his stuff is, is definitely more melodic than the trance that's coming out, uh, but it's a, lot, it's a lot cleaner, and it's a lot, as he said before, it's very white. So I, there, there's, this, is, this is where... You know, I think the reason why there's such a discussion about where trance begins and who was the first trance uh, is because anything with a slight amount of melody, it can be considered trance. So where, where do you draw the line? You've got techno with 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 a little bit of a melody in it and you've got industrial music, which is basically techno with a bit more melody in it. So there, there's a, a real argument uh, amongst everybody as to, you know, what's industrial what's techno and what's trance. And I think that's why there's such a, there's such an, it's not even ugly. No one's even trying to really claim, claim the mantle as the first trance um, artist, really. <laughs> it's a bit of a void. Frankfurt, Frankfurt gets like a, the, the vote. If you're going to pick most influential city, then Frankfurt gets a lot of votes for that. But then again, uh, a lot of what was going on was happening because of Sven Vath and guys like that who were going to Goa and bringing that back. So uh, it's, it's, it's a real big dog's breakfast of, of, of influences coming together and different genres being, being pushed together. And maybe it's, it's really just the trance is an overbroad genre name. And, and that's another element of it. So. Yeah, and one thing about Paul Van Dyke I, I want to add is that you talked about these tape mix DJs, and you know that goes back to Tom Moulton with the disco days. But Paul Van Dyke was another guy who did his first mixes on tape because he was a very poor kid in East Germany. He didn't have a decent turntable. He couldn't afford 12 inches. And his first break came when he'd been making some mixtapes on cassette for his friends, got a DJ gig. He had to get half his money up front so he could go out and buy some records so he would be able to spend that night. So uh, yet another tape DJ um, before he becomes a record DJ. And the, the, the whole trance dance thing predates trance music because that was uh, a, a name that had been used in britain for house you know this repetitive house mix that they had been calling as a joke progressive house because the term progressive from progressive rock in the early 70s was in such bad odor in the early 90s that just calling something progressive was an immediate diss um but you you get this stuff that's not that's upper body rhythms that makes you want to wave your arms in the air like like you know a, a hippie chick at a grateful dead show and they were already calling it trance dancing so when we come in peace or we came in peace by dance to trance comes out the name's already there and gets applied yeah there's there this, this is kind of uh, when you're talking about the first tracks uh, a lot of them just say okay well you know uh, klf has a stake to it because they released a track called uh uh the, what is this track geez klf they had a couple of them i always get confused what time is love in 1988 and that record comes out and on the sleeve it says pure trance number one and they released a couple of these pure trance records and you say well how can what time is love not be considered the first trance record when it was so early into everything 1988 and it says trance on the label but again when you listen to it there's elements of 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 pop of of rock of uh, of new wave of of that kind of euro dance uh 1990s dance to trance uh 
is I think it's the track with the least cross contamination from other genres. It's the real pure trance track. And uh, one half of Dance to Trance also happens to be Jam Elmar of Jam and Spoon, who the big discussion as to what the first trance track is for years, they used to say it was a, a jam and spoon remix of age of love in 1992, which obviously, you know, DJs are, are pulling out records, dozens and dozens of records that came before that, uh, saying that it's not true. But in the end, it turns out that, you know, it's basically jam and spoon anyways, that's that did the first pure trance track. So why not just give them the credit for it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. But you've got here in your notes, that we know what started the explosion. So what did start the explosion? Well, Paul Van Dyke put out a remix of Humate's Love Sensation, and, and Love Sensation was a big Acid House track. And uh, if you listen to it, it's got all the Acid House hallmarks, the UK Acid House hallmarks. And then his remix of it puts, uh, you know, puts that big divide between what is UK Acid House and what is trance. And it, the track exploded. It was huge. And it was followed up by a, a number of other productions of his, uh, most notably Foreign Angel, which, uh, which, which was kind of, I'd say, one of the first anthems of the genre. So from there, guys like Paul Van Dyke pushing the sound and having these clubs where, you know, you're finally getting your first experience or exposure in Europe to hands in the air trance uh, and Sven Vath, you know, carrying the flame and, and releasing a bunch of stuff on his own labels. Uh, it, it just really pushed it all. And then from there, uh, you know, we're off to the races. You got to give Paul Oakenfold credit in the UK for, for pushing trance to the forefront. It, it, it's, and it's interesting because he keeps on coming up. I remember being a kid and reading all the mix mags and having Paul Oakenfold at that point being treated as a God and not really understanding what the deal was and, 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 and kind of thinking he was a bit oversold. But when you go through the history, you got to give Paul Oakenfold a lot of credit because, you know, fresh off his opening slot for U2's uh, zoo tour, uh, he started going to Goa and he got really influenced by trance. He went off from that Madchester acid house indie dance sound and went whole hog on trance. So he's very much responsible for for uh, being a person uh, that's connected enough and powerful enough already in the dance scene to start pushing a new trend. And in 1993, he puts out uh, Not Over Yet. Uh, under uh, a pseudonym state of grace and he puts it out on his perfecto label which up until that point was releasing mainstream you know radio friendly music and he puts out this pure trance track and from there per perfecto like all the releases after that are basically trance he creates a, a sub label called perfecto fluoro which is just nothing but pure psy trance and he releases what's known as the Goa mix, uh, which was one of the biggest essential mixes ever released, which is a two hour mix of trance and psychedelic trance that was played on the BBC. And while it's, you know, this this was before Goa trance was Goa trance, Goa trance meant something different. At, at this point, it wasn't really established. You go back and you listen to this mix and it, you very much recognize that everything is 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 more UK trance than Goa trance. But, you know, at the time there were no rules and, and this stuff was happening. Uh, so he really kind of put the flag down and carried it for trance in the UK. And uh, you can't you can't ignore that. So between Oakenfold in the UK and Paul Van Dyke, Sven Vath and all those guys like that big circle in Germany, uh, you know, I feel like it was inevitable that things would explode and this music would start to chart commercially. And speaking of commercially, let's take a quick break, hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll talk about what goes on with trance through the rest of the 90s. And I also want to talk about drugs. 
And so, like I said, I want to talk about drugs because one of the things that's always dogged the dance music scene, maybe always, is allegations that this is just an excuse to take drugs. This is just a front for drug taking. But there's no denying. I mean, Brewster, uh, Brewster and Broughton call this drug-friendly arrangements and Pavlovian tricks, floaty atmospheric breakdowns, which it's just designed to manipulate people who are frying out of their minds on X. And even the melodic aspects, like they, they note that DJs would actually write what keys records were in you know on the record label so they would know oh i don't want to go from you know a to b flat back to back that's going to sound terrible but maybe i can go from an a to a g something like that and so you had to think about this melodic aspect and this isn't a genre that just a couple of years earlier people are making tracks where they're slapping things together samples you know you, you that are wildly in the wrong key <laughs> you know you might have a record that's got five six keys in it because whoever was making it had no concept of the whole notion of keys but some of these djs get sophisticated enough that they start deliberately thinking about what key the songs are in and raising the key as the party continues to create this feeling of ever ascending euphoria and goa also has a different set of drugs than are available in the uk especially after the big crackdown which we haven't talked about yet but there's a massive police crackdown on raves and the dance scene in the uk and on drugs around this time and it becomes a lot harder to get there but that's never a problem in goa yeah, I feel I feel like uh, you know the the worst thing you can ever accuse trance of is is of making the music too palatable. Like they they ended up, uh, you know, uh, you can lean into the commercial elements of it, and uh, the genre definitely did. Some of the earliest uh, big hits that trance had were were trance covers of of of, of pop songs, and uh, you had an entire scene that basically got built up. Gatecrasher was known for for all of these trance anthems that you would hear on the radio endlessly that would drive you know underground people nuts. But uh, you know you can't deny that it's uh, it it can get you going. And and as far as the, the drug accusations go, you know obviously that that happens across all electronic music. I used to be an uplifting trance DJ, and I didn't try ecstasy until 2006. So I was I was like seven years into DJing it before I even understood that element of it. So there's you know there, there's definitely there's something there when you're when you're not so when you're when you're when you are sober that I, I don't, I don't think you can deny. And I think it's just, you know, more of that pushback because, you know, uh, trance happened, uh, at the same time as the golden age of, of UK clubbing, you had the, uh, the laws in the UK changing that pushed everybody out of the farmer's fields around the, uh, around the highways in, in the UK into the clubs. And all of a sudden you had clubs like Gatecrasher and cream and the gallery that were all set up to give you this, uplifting trance experience and people going in there dressed like ravers taking loads of drugs getting uh, getting nuts uh around what was that? i think it was like 2002 or something like that there was a big uh, a, a big scandal because one person died of ecstasy and and all of a sudden you had this big bash bash backlash and, and bash i like it bashlash so sasha 
uh, the, one of the main guys at, uh, at Gatecrasher ends up putting a box up at the front of the club and it's the Amnesty Raver box. And he says, put your glow sticks, put your fun fur, put your Vicks, put all your, all your, your druggy rave paraphernalia in this box and we'll take it. We'll throw it in the, in, in the ocean and we'll forget it ever happened. And now we're going to, we're going to get away from, you know, all this commercial stuff. You know, Robert Miles' children, uh, Darude Sandstorm, Castles in the Sky. We're going we're gonna to go away from all of that, and we're going to start listening to progressive trance. And progressive trance, you kind of mentioned that progressive rock was, 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 was so demeaned that the progressive term uh, was, was already kind of a, a, a diss towards trance. But it's funny because trance DJs took the progressive label to try and get away from the diss that was trance. Uh, you went uh, progressive trance at the beginning before it kind of got co-opted into an attitude was just about the slower, uh, slower building kind of trance music that was coming out on labels like uh, like Bonsai and Platypus. But around 2000, you got guys like Sasha who are playing 16 minutes of just kind of really go nowhere trance that, that is very serious takes itself very seriously it's not a whole lot of fun but you can drink a gin and tonic in the club to it and not sweat through your shirt so it becomes the the preferred musical uh trance for clubs you still had a big underground scene uh that was going with all of the hands in the air stuff and the euphoric trance and the and and we we haven't even touched on hard trance hard dance hard energy hands up all the all the 50 other underground rave trance genres that end up popping up in the background but around 2000 onwards progressive takes over and it sucks <laughs> and the, the, and I, I feel like everybody's had the experience of wanting to go to a to a club to hear trance music and then it's progressive trance and it just being the same thing all night and being very disappointed in it. I ended up becoming a trance DJ because I couldn't find a trance DJ that played the kind of trance that I wanted, which was, you know, honestly, it was the cheesy gate crasher stuff, the club trance, the hands in the air business, you know, but uh, you couldn't really find that. I saw Armin Van Buren a couple of years too late and he was playing nothing but progressive. And uh, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was very serious and it wasn't a lot of fun. Uh, and, and that's just the way that the scene was. And, and at the time I thought I was going crazy, but I look back on it now and feel vindicated because Around 2006, that entire scene collapses uh, just because I, I guess people woke up and realized they weren't having fun. <laughs> no, one was, no one was really enjoying that sound. Yeah. But one thing that's consistent about trance, and I think is its best defense against allegations that it's just a drug taking music, is that these tempos, I mean, it's never slower than 134 beats per minute, frequently, you know, 140, stuff like that, that beat alone. And like you're, you're dissing the stuff for being so samey, but what they're going for is that power of repetition and playing that beat over and over. And you can get people into a trance state drug free. And so that's, that's a key factor. I think um, that, that shouldn't, shouldn't go unmentioned. And I'm going to jump and play the next bit a little early hopefully Steph can forgive me but I want to go back and let's hear Dance to Trance We Came in Peace from 1990 Ryan's pick for the first trance track is that fair? Yeah Alright Dance to Trance We Came in Peace
And that was Dance to Trance, We Came in Peace from 1990. And that's half of Jam and Spoon. And yeah, I mean, you hear that to me, to my ears, that sounds like trance. And it's funny, you're talking about this, you know, the Knots era, the, the 2000s. And this is the era when hip hop producers start get into these sounds because the first time I became aware of this stuff was was Timberland um I think on Justin Timberlake I remember hearing a Justin Timberlake song and being what the hell because I had deliberately tuned out of Justin Timberlake being you know your classic sexist white dude anti-boy band rockist ignored Justin Timberlake you know as hard as I could was mad at him about the Janet Jackson Super Bowl thing yeah. then he does this song and I can immediately tell it's Timberland but there's something else going on, and I had to investigate and find out what the hell is this. And that's where the trance uh, starts to break through into hip-hop and into the pop scene. Yeah, you also had Madonna. Madonna was, uh, again, somebody who gets a lot of flack for jumping on trends. But when you look back at her track record, it's it's pretty solid. Madonna was released Ray of Light, uh, the yeah. single, with like six remixes on it. That was 1998. So that was uh, that was, that was kind of right in the middle of that big heyday. And that wasn't the only single that she put out that had, you know, names like Sasha and Tiesto and uh, Above and Beyond and guys like the uh, lesser known guys like Trouser Enthusiasts who are still very key in in the evolution of early trance. She got legit guys to remix her stuff and, and those singles hold up. Yeah, I mean, and it's definitely this period when pop is kind of taking back over. Rock had had this big run in the early 2000s or kind of maybe more hype than, than actual popularity, but you know, the white stripes and the strokes are, are everywhere. And, and all of a sudden pop comes back in a big way in this period. And it's just omnivorous. It's just eating up other genres and spewing them back in your face. And one other player from hip hop is Lil John, who's like the punk rockist hip hop guy. I mean, his scene crunk, was totally dissed by the lyrical rappers. The critics hated it. White dude rockers like me loved it. And one of his secrets was he's not just taking the yelling and aggression of punk rock, but he's stealing these synth riffs from the trance scene and and totally brings it together, um, you know, to me, a delightful pop experience. So you got to take the good with the bad and the stuff. And, and I think it's just like anything else where when people find a formula and it's successful – and it's massively successful. Whenever something is massively successful, you're going to have the masses involved. And whenever you get, you know, it's like the old joke about imagine the perfect person of average intelligence. Think about how stupid they are and then realize half the people in the world are dumber than that. And so, you know, anytime the crowds get that big, the IQ levels are going to drop. And I hate to be an elitist like that, but that's just facts, Jack. I'm sorry. And you know, and there's nothing wrong with just being a fan who wants to come in and party and dance and not be totally committed to the music, just wants to have a taste, go to a big festival, wave their arms in the air. You know, you can't argue with success until you get sick of it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when, when we talk about the watering down of the genre, which is, I think, a, 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 when, when people talk about the death of the scene, they often speak about that. But I think it was more along the lines of when you have a genre like trance that is basically defined by just elaborate synth riffs, of course, every other genre of music is going to include a synthesizer eventually or just be left in the dust. You know, you know, you don't want to end up just being like a, a parody of a surf band or something like that if you're not going to incorporate a synthesizer into into your modern music. So in a way, all of those synth sounds were, were, were bound to, to cross over into the mainstream. And, uh, you know, 
trance music kind of uh, ends up morphing, even though it quote unquote dies around 2006, progressive house and EDM, you know, these are just offshoot genres of trance, if not just trance uh, under a different label. So I, anybody that talks about trance dying, got to recognize the fact that all of these big EDM festivals have, uh, you know, usually a, a stage if or at the very least several time slots for, for classic trance. And a lot of the other guys like Dead Mouse, who are technically progressive house or EDM, again, depending on what what track it is or what mood the label is when they're when they're slapping a, a, de, a definition on it, trying to sell more copies. He's all of his stuff is 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 as trancey as trance can get. So it's I, I find it very hard to pin pin the genre down. And that's because it's kind of the granddaddy of so many grandchildren that are running around causing all sorts of problem and guys like uh, guys like Little John taking it and, and integrating it into hip hop. And I've heard a lot of hip hop that, that, that has trance elements now. I've heard drum and bass that's trance and bass. And it's I love it because I'm I'm in it for the melodic synthesizers. So if you've got a melody and you've got a weird synth preset, I'm there for it. And another factor, though, uh, to bring it back to Goa, is this use of Asian motifs, Indian music, Arabic music motifs, that is a big part of what Timbaland was doing with Missy Elliott in the late 90s. And I often wonder if it wasn't their exposure to, to Goa, to psych trance, that led them there you know like we know that these guys were tuned in to what was going on on the dance scene but otherwise i mean it's not any big deal these are middle class people with as much access to the internet and the library as i have so that i'm sure they could hear uh you know indian music on their own but i suspect that there's a direct connection to goa here and and you know we're gonna we're gonna do these things out of order so we haven't we've taped our episode on balearic and the abitha theme but i think this is going to drop right after our techno episode so our listeners haven't heard that stuff yet but i think it's just sort of fascinating that these two tropical beach hedonistic paradises are these sort of dueling influences on dance music over the next uh, couple of decades and in some ways, they're opposite because, you know, Ibiza is this, you know, fascist, Franco, neoliberal, deliberate plan to completely turn out an island for tourists and real estate investors and accidentally becomes this hedonistic, drug-taking, music-revolutionary spot, whereas Goa is this basically abandoned, neg neglected – I mean, that's harsh, but it's – nobody was masterminding – the evolution of Goa into because today there's not a lot of diff. I mean, there's a difference, but Goa is also massively commercialized so much so that the scene has moved away. You know, it's become Tel Aviv East, and it's funny to me that two so different starts kind of end up at the same point, eaten by capitalism and hedonism in in similar ways. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. But well, the the way I look at it is that uh, it's kind of similar to how you needed to leave New York to get Detroit techno or Chicago house. Uh, at, at a certain point, if you're in the the epicenter of of something that's going on, it's very hard to deviate from that, and it's very hard to to try something different without a bunch of people saying you're doing it wrong. And uh, you know, it took uh, it took that 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 fateful trip of of Oakenfold and a couple other guys to uh, Ibiza to to hear 
a DJ who wasn't afraid to mash it up because he didn't have punters throwing beer bottles at, at their heads to realize that, that, that they were doing it wrong and they were too locked in. And it was the same thing going over to Goa and, and hearing these guys breaking all the rules and, and integrating music that wasn't dance music into their dance music to make uh, everybody in Europe kind of realize that, that there's, there's more, there's, there's a lot more tread on, on these tires than maybe a lot of people realized. Yeah, and it's fascinating to me that Oakenfold is the one guy who goes to both places and draws massive inspiration that he immediately makes an impact on the scene with. Um, and, and that, I guess, just says something about his need for summer holidays. <laughs> yeah, also, I mean, it, it's it's the most uh, probably it's the most influential summer holidays in uh, in the history of the world, uh, or as far as the history of music. Who else has gone on vacation twice and and changed the the face of music twice? Yeah, I maybe the Beatles. Know, I'm sure the Beatles did it, and and I'm you know Prince probably did. Had I don't know if Prince took vacations, but anyway, we're we're far afield. Let's hear our next song. This is a, a number from 2003, Ferry Corsten's Punk. Let's hear it, and then you can come back and tell us why you picked it. That was Punk by Ferry Corsten from 2003. Ryan, why did you pick this one to cap off our trance episode? Well, I thought it was it was the perfect track to to bridge people from kind of what was going on in 2000 to what started basically uh, w- what exists now and what's been going on since basically 2006. Because you had Ferry Corsten, who is one of the most influential trance producers ever. He started producing, you know, back with with all the other uh, maestros of, of the genre in, in 1996 and released a whole bunch of anthems, uh, all of them euphoric, uplifting trance. And then in 2000 three he releases an album called right of way and he and these singles punk and rock your body rock and they are electro trance and electro trance basically is the beginning of 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 trance breaking free from what what had turned into a uh you know you were either making uh kind of boring progressive trance that had like you know uh kind of house elements to it slow enough to sway and, and and drink in a club or or you had this ridiculous uh, rave music going on and Ferry Corsten decided that he didn't want to kind of give up the BPM, but he did want to go in a more of a, of a funky electro way. And he was, this was extremely, extremely influential at this point. He basically convinces a whole bunch of other producers that this is, this is where the action is. This is what's happening. And, and from there, everybody starts pushing, uh, forward into into whatever new sound trance will take, and this is basically where EDM comes out of. So, and so he's referencing electro. He means Planet Rock, Africa Bambata, and that early '80s style of hip hop. Correct? No, actually, yeah. uh, you know, uh, well, that that '80s electro uh, hip hop electro is different from what was happening in the late nineties, early oddies with electro dance, uh, which oh. kind of, which, which was stuff like Fisher Spooner and, um, peaches and a couple of other, other people. It was, it was, it was early dance. Electro had a lot to do with kind of a punk sounding new wave feel to it. 
Hmm. And, How and funny. It's, it's, Maybe it's something that we want to tack into our uh, our big beat trip hop because because uh, dance electro is very interesting. Yeah, I and can... I, on that note, Simon Reynolds is going to cover that big beat and trip hop stuff, so I don't know that we need to do a special deviate from this book episode on that. Um, I was just looking through Energy Flash, so previews of things to come down the road on Technoroll, and this one we've taped out of order, so you're going to hear this coming after techno and next week we'll be going to ibiza and talking about the arctic but keep in mind when you hear that one we didn't know what we were going to do this yet so uh, things are a little bit jumbled up but we are going to basically be following the thread of last night a dj saved my life i think through the end of the book and then um so just a few more chapters to go and then we'll be taking techno roll to Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, which covers the developments in the 90s in a much more in-depth way. This book, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Brewster and Broughton, again, I think it's totally invaluable. It's the only book I know of that goes back to the beginnings, the absolute beginnings of DJing, the first radio DJ at the beginning of the 20th century, the first DJ... Uh, the, the infamous Jimmy Savile uh, first DJ to charge admission for people to hear and play his records. And, and, you know, this book takes us all the way. So I'm not too bummed that this book doesn't to me cover the nineties and two thousands as in depth as some of the other books that we're hoping to get to. It's just, you know, a matter of scope. You can't cover everything well. And, and the broader thing is, but again, I do think they just trance a little bit, probably possibly because of their personal taste. So that's why we've done this very special episode on trance. So Ryan Harkness, thanks very much for being our guidepost because I don't know jack about this stuff. Ah, happy to help. Awesome. So we'll see you next week. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be covering the acid house explosion that shook Britain in the late 1980s and early 90s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.